You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. In today's episode, yours truly, Lindsay Smalling, was in Boston for the MIT Solve Conference, and I took the opportunity to visit with Caesar McDowell and Ayushi Roy, co-hosts of the Move podcast, and then we conferenced in David Wertheimer of the Gates Foundation from Seattle. Caesar McDowell is a professor of civic design at MIT School of Urban Design. His decades of research and teaching have been focused on the use of mass media and technology in promoting democracy, the development and use of empathy in community work, civil rights history, peacemaking, conflict resolution, such interesting and thoughtful approaches to community building. And currently his work is focused on the development of community knowledge systems and civic engagement. Ayushi Roy, co-host of The Move, is completing a master's program in urban policy at MIT. She previously served as a Coro Fellow in public policy in San Francisco and then led digital strategy for Oakland City Hall's Civic Design Lab. And David Wertheimer, director of community and civic engagement at Gates Foundation, was the one who first alerted us to the really interesting conversations that Caesar and Ayushi have been advancing around designing for the margins and other principles in their civic design framework. This is one of the more free-ranging conversations that we've hosted on Money and Meaning, but also one of the most interesting because we were all essentially still strangers as we sat down to record this. You can hear the discovery of points of intersection and new inquiries happening in real time as this conversation takes its winding but energetic path. We have our theme about unlikely allies building new markets for impact, and sometimes we don't talk about the part that unlikely allies start with valuable strangers. So this idea of bringing people together into a room who maybe wouldn't sort of meet each other in the course of their work, in their course of pursuing social impact, and that by bringing those strangers together, sometimes these new partnerships happen. And we're all valuable strangers in this room today because I really just met Ayushi and Caesar for the first time in person, met them virtually only a few weeks ago, and met David only a few months ago. Um, we have a really interesting set of guests today, and we're just going to go on a free-ranging conversation with this sort of core of how can we exchange value, insight, knowledge across these different areas of practice, building on that theme of unlikely allies and valuable strangers. David, I want to start with you, David Wertheimer, who is the Director of Community and Civic Engagement at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And David, this is an unusual role, from my understanding, within Gates. Gates is so often known for its role in international work, and I was excited to learn about your position. But can you help us sort of understand what is that that role of community engagement, civic engagement? At Gates. Sure, I'm happy to. And first, it's just really an honor and a, a pleasure to be here. So <clears throat> delighted to join you today, long distance from Seattle. And uh, you're you're absolutely right that the the Gates Foundation, the the primary foci of the Gates Foundation are the 32 global strategies that we engage in around the world that that are focused on on some of the greatest challenges that are, are faced by under resourced nations uh, uh, in different parts of the world, whether that's issues like malaria or polio or access to effective agricultural techniques or, or, uh, uh, micro technologies related to finance, et cetera. Uh, that said, uh, even though that's the primary focus of our work with our people, and we have about 1600 employees, uh, around the world, we're also concerned that, that we show up in the places where we work as a good neighbor, as a good citizen, as a participant in, in the issues uh, that, are, that are forefront in the communities where we're living and working. And since our primary headquarters globally is right here in Seattle, the, the primary focus of that work is, is in our own backyard here in Seattle in, in the local community. There is a, a Pacific Northwest team at the foundation that works on uh, four strategies that are that are 
four of the 32 foundation strategies uh, here uh, locally. They're working on education. They're working on family homelessness. They're working on early learning. Um, but uh, we also have the community and civic engagement team, which looks at kind of the overall impact the foundation has on the region and how we can best show up as 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 a neighbor. When you look at the the all-in economic footprint of the foundation in the Puget Sound region, it's it's about 1.5 billion dollars a year in 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 total economic impact. Now, compared to an Amazon or a Microsoft, that's nothing. That's a drop in the bucket. And yet, for a philanthropic organization that's really focused on 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 trying to do good locally and in the world, that's a fairly substantial number. So you have this really sort of deep, nuanced cross-sector work that you do in the Pacific Northwest region, but you decided to take your show on the road last year a little bit, and that's how you ended up meeting Caesar all the way over in Boston. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what was what was the role of this tour you yeah, we we were we didn't take our show on the road as much as we went to learn from six communities that are using technology to advance opportunity and equity in their own communities. And we went to Pittsburgh, Chicago, Boston, Houston, New York City, and Portland uh, because there were interesting interesting things happening in each of those cities. And one of the places where where uh, the the team from Metro Lab that that helped us organize these these tours. Uh, decided we really needed to go was to MIT and to the Urban Studies Department at uh, at MIT, and so they set up a meeting with Caesar and and his team and some of his 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 uh, proteges and disciples. Dare I say? Um, and uh, <laughs> we were uh, we were late to the meeting. Uh, it's kind of amusing because we got to MIT and um, uh, there was a number that for the building we had to go to and. The numbers are not sequential. It's it's uh, it's MIT. So there's there's an algorithm for how the buildings are numbered, and, <laughs> and unless you know the algorithm, you can't find the building. So we came in late, and I said, you know, I apologized to Caesar and his and his folks, and said I could never be a professor or a student at MIT because I'd never find any of my classrooms. Um, but the conversation that we had with Caesar was was truly one of the kind of highlights of of our six city tour, because I, I remember distinctly uh, when I. Uh, introduced the topic of uh, uh, human-centered design. And uh, I started talking about kind of our focus on human-centered design. And Caesar said something really potent to me, our group. And he said, he said, I'm not really a big fan of human-centered design. And that really surprised me. And I, I said, well, wh- why is that? Uh, and Caesar said, well, the, the challenge with human-centered design is too often it starts at the middle and works its way out. And to be effective, human-centered design needs to start at the margins and work its way in. Because if you start in the middle, you never get to the margins. And so you never get to the, the marginality that human-centered design needs to address. And as a footnote to this, um, uh, two weeks ago, I read uh, Melinda Gates's new book, uh, Moment of Lift, which is, which is a great read. Um, and I was really impressed by the number of times Melinda, in her own articulation of the work that she's been doing here for the last 20 years or so, also talked about the importance of going to the margins to learn the lessons that you need to learn to do the work effectively as a foundation. And the the time she has spent with individuals, with families, with communities in sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia, in, in, in here in the United States even, looking at marginality and figuring out what it means to, to work from the margins in really resonates with what Caesar was talking about uh, in, in – uh, uh, to us when when we visited at MIT. And Caesar, you actually have a great TED talk on this topic, this idea of the margins. But how did it? I mean, was this your light bulb? Was there a moment? How did you sort of come to this framing? That's a really interesting uh, question because uh, I don't know how I would name the moment that it happened. Um, I think it's something that I've been working with, kind of a lot in my life. But I think one of the origin stories of this has to do around the importance of voice. And I've really continued throughout my whole life to be interested in this question about how people have voice over their own lived experience and the extent to which if you can't name your experience in the world, then there's no way it's going to be part of actually finding solutions to the world or building power in the world or your engagement. And so many people in the world are actually... Are voiceless, either because of the systems they're in 
are because of, you know, the own, you know, things that have happened to them in their life. And the act of just being able to name your experience in the world, to give voice to your experience, is a really powerful thing. And so I think for me what has happened over time, I realized that as I started to think about this issue of democracy in our country and what's going on, and really being... I don't want to say perplexed by, but just recognizing the challenge that we have given the immense complexity of who comprises our public now. And that um, in a successful democracy, in a successful community, that complex set of people need to figure out how to be in relationship with each other, to talk with each other. And yet, if we have folks who are actually voiceless in the system, then uh, that's not going to happen. And those people who are that are really the ones who are at the margins of society the most. So I think it came out of that kind of, you know, kind of notion and framework that, and I think the other piece of it is, is that in any system, uh, one of the things about working at the margins is you actually understand much more profoundly what's not working in the system, Right. Sort of canary in the coal mine. Yeah, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine. So if you go there and you work there, then you understand, one, what might be possible to do to fix the system, or if the system itself is actually wrong and needs to be abandoned and something else put in place. So that's kind of the one. Uh, those are two ways of getting into it. And I think the third way for me is I've just, uh, throughout my life, been in uh, really passionate about issues of racial equity and equity in general in this, you know, in the world. And so I think all three of those kind of have led me to this notion of design for the margins. I guess the other thing I want to say about it is um, I've done a lot of, I, sometimes I actually name things because I want to name, bring attention to the opposite of it that we don't necessarily see. Smart. Right, so I used to <laughs> I used to talk a lot about something called big democracy, and I talked about it as a counterpoint to big data, because data, big data was just you know this whole notion about smart cities and using big data and so on and so forth. You know that that's what we need. That's going to help us actually um, build a stronger uh, city and engagement with the public. And you know my notion was well, no, actually we need big democracy. You know. Because that's about something else, you know. So, I think also some of the design for the margins comes in reaction to things like human-centered design, other things that folks are doing without paying attention to the, I think the deep philosophical, political, and structural issues that are actually in the way. Uh, so, and so, David, when you when this sort of resonated with you, and obviously it did, because as both you and Caesar have said, it was a very brief meeting, but this idea stuck with you and you brought it up um, months later in in our meeting. And how does that connect to the work that you're doing in this sort of civic engagement, community engagement? Has it changed your perception of of what it looks like to succeed in engaging in the community? I think so, yes. And and one of the ways that, that, that uh, we put it on my team is that, that we have to determine how to work with unfamiliar partners in unfamiliar ways, which means reaching out beyond the familiar for us to communities and constituencies that um, may not be familiar to us sitting inside the, the, the beautiful walls here of the Gates Foundation. An example of that is is we, we took a, 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 a modest... Uh, uh, bucket of funds last year. And uh, we created uh, a new approach to grant making locally, which which we called uh, community-driven grant making. And uh, we had uh, provided in a, in a previous year uh, a grant to a remarkable organization called the Rainier Valley Corps. And, and we went to the Rainier Valley Corps and, and said, so so what 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 is missing? And this is an organization that serves South King County, which is historically a uh, uh, one of the, the, the epicenters of, of where refugee and immigrant families uh, settle in, 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 our, in our region. And we said, what are community organizations missing uh, that could be useful that the Gates Foundation could provide? And, and they said, well, 
perhaps we should could could consider funding a program to uh, help organizations, very grassroots organizations in the community, hire staff that allow them to be at the tables of conversations about them, sort of the nothing about us without us approach. And so we funded what were, were what Rainier Valley Corps called the Rainier Valley Fellows, who were fellows that were placed in community-based organizations uh, in South King County that, uh, with, with no restrictions on what those individuals could do except engage uh, in, in, the, in the conversations about their communities that were happening locally, regionally, statewide, et cetera. And then last year, what we did was we took those Rainier Valley Fellows and we empowered them as grant makers. And we said, you will pick a cohort of organizations in South King County and in, in the Rainier Valley community uh, to receive grants from directly from the Gates Foundation, which which uh, is a door opener for many nonprofits to sort of have that good housekeeping seal of approval of a Gates Foundation grant. And some of the there were there were eight grantees that received uh, grants from the foundation. A few of them were organizations I wasn't even familiar with, and I've been in this community and working in it for 30 years. And the grants weren't that big. Some of them were you know a fifty thousand dollar grant, but that grant doubled the budget of the organization uh, that we we were funding. Um, and it was really exciting to see the community empowered to make the decisions about where the funding should go rather than having a bunch of us sitting here inside the, the Gates Foundation deciding where the funding should go. So that's that's one kind of uh, example of, of, of how this 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 concept is, is impacting us. And another going back to to the to the, the comment that Caesar made about about big data and, and how that's such an important conversation is how we think about the ways we use data that can either enhance or inhibit movement towards equity and opportunity. Uh, the, 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 the tendency to use algorithms, for example. Um, we visited the, the Child Welfare Department in, uh, in Allegheny County in, in Pittsburgh, which actually there's a chapter in a book by Virginia Eubanks uh, called Automating Inequality, where she writes about the, the, the Child Welfare Department in, in Allegheny County. And because Pittsburgh and Allegheny County have have been an economically stressed region for for dec decades now, they don't necessarily have the resources to um, investigate every uh, allegation of child abuse that occurs in Allegheny County, and so they've developed algorithms to help them figure out how to to figure out which children are most at risk. And they were one of the first child welfare departments to do this, and they are in a constant learning cycle of figuring out how to make the algorithms that they're using as equitable as possible. Uh, because depending on what data you put into an algorithm, you may skew the results of that analysis in, in interesting ways. If, if you're working on uh, you know, experiences of a family in the criminal justice system, uh, that will skew towards African-American families, uh, males in particular. Who are disproportionately overrepresented in the criminal justice system. If you tie it to evictions, uh, as we've seen from Matt Desmond's incredible work, Evicted, um, that may skew towards uh, African American women, and you get disproportionate uh, data that that is 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 promoting or in, in enhancing the inequities that are in the system. And Allegheny County is acutely aware of this and is working constantly to refine and strengthen its algorithms. When we went to New York. It was fascinating. Uh, New York City, as I understand it, and I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm an ex-New Yorker, so I, I'm, I'm not, but what my understanding of what we learned in New York was that any algorithm that a government agency utilizes to analyze its data and make decisions about funding or activities, et cetera, has to pass muster, not only with the, the Office of Data Technology at the city, but also with the city's Human Rights Commission. And the city's Human Rights Commission analyzes and, and examines every algorithm a city agency will use um, before it can be implemented to ensure that it is not reinforcing or exacerbating patterns of inequity, but in fact is being uh, as, as fair and just uh, uh, a tool as possible. So I think that we have to be, and one of the things we learned in our, in our visits was there are ways to use big data equitably, there are ways to use big data inequitably. And how you do that and the ways you do that really, really matter. Yeah. And I just can't help but bridge here to the amazing podcast that Caesar and his co-host Ayushi host. And one of the first episodes is around some of this, um, when you're designing the design for justice and how important that is as a first criteria, because in these 
you know, sitting here at MIT, you have people who can create the best algorithms in the world, but depending on the factors that they're including and how they're understanding, uh, you know, what diversity means, what timeline are we doing this for, what biases are existing in that, there's very different outcomes of, of what an algorithm can create. So I sort of jumped jumped ahead there, but can Caesar and Ayushi, can you talk a little bit about the move and how what you're trying to do with that? Yeah, so um, the move is a movement that we are trying to create to basically rebuild the public's muscle for democracy. Um, we believe that um, the democratic institutions that we currently have were made for a different kind of public. And so as our public has evolved in terms of complexity, its diversity, its variance of voice and access, we need to also evolve the institutions of democracy to be able to then include all of those people um, to have not just sort of that seat at the table, but to feel like they're decision makers and that their voice is being heard. Um, and one big part of our uh, move movement has been to record this podcast um, that is self-titled, also the move. <laughs> and um, Caesar and I co-host. We are now on season two, which is really exciting. Um, we feature SoCap in it, so I hope your listeners get to plug in. This is a question I've been having. You use this framework of there's a different public now. Can you say a little bit more? I mean, because I think America's been a place of immigrants. There's been a complexity of identities. Is it partly just the ways that we all interact more now? Or what are the things that have, have changed the dynamics? I think we need to go back a little bit uh, because, yes, America has always been that kind of thing with lots of different kinds of people coming in. I think that complexity has been growing more and more. But I think the problem is not that. The problem is that the kind of foundational elements of our democracy and our role of the publics were actually built on some faulty ground, right? And so when you think about it, I used to do this exercise sometimes with people, and I would say to you, okay, so close your eyes and and, uh, listen to this word, and I'd say democracy, and then say, now, what's the first image that comes to your mind? Sometimes people would say protest. A lot of times what will come up is this notion of the New England town hall, just like people being doing that. And then I say, let's deconstruct why that image is so powerful and what's underneath it. Because that notion of what democracy looks like, and it's you know polite people talking to each other, was built at a time when uh, basically the people who could speak in those meetings were land-holding white men, People lived in communities because they shared a common fate, right? And so we've, we've built an infrastructure around that. And then what we've started to do over time is as we become more and more uh, diverse, we've been trying to open up that definition. We've been trying to tweak it, right? And we've tweaked it so much so that it doesn't even function correctly. And I'll give you an example of that. You think about public open meetings right now and how city governments uh, have to allow time for public comments. Well, all of that actually came out of a notion of what was happening, um, you know, in response to, you know, in the 60s, really trying to open it up what was happening in government, right, and to ensure that there was a way for the public to participate. But that, that solution <laughs> is, for most people, the most frustrating part about engaging with your government right now, right? You get to stand up and give your two-minute comments. So part of the problem is, I, I name this complexity and diversity because we've always had it. I say there are lots of things that are driving it and making it a little different now than it was before. But the faultiness of our infrastructure, the base of which our civic infrastructure is built on, the fault of that and this complexity are actually colliding. And so we just, we, I think we have to rethink, right, and start to redesign with this complexity in mind, what a civic infrastructure would look like. So that's why this complexity is really important. And there are a couple of things also I think are different about the demographic complexity of who we are now. It is true we were a country of, well, i say this two ways. We're a country of invaders, and then we are a country of immigrants, right? So all those things, and we are also a country of people who were enslaved. So we have all these different dynamics going on. 
but over the years, as people immigrated more and more and more into this country, one of the narratives always was you would come here and you would be here, right? Technology has changed that, right? Technology has changed it so that people can move here and should move here, and they don't have to let go of their homeland anymore, right? There's a, such a fluidness now with information, communication, being able to move your body around in space that that connection between what was my homeland and I'm here is not something that's fragmented so, as much anymore by the fact that you're in another country because there are all kinds of ways to hold on to it and keep it going. So what does that mean when people are able to hold on and sustain their culture and the sense of being in a place with other people? Right, And then how do they negotiate that and talk about that? So I just think our challenges of the public are a lot more complex than we've been thinking about them. And our structure of thinking about them is to really put people in boxes. You know, those boxes could be, well, you're interested in this and you're interested in that, and that's how we will help you organize yourselves. You're a Democrat, you're a Republican. But in the end, we're actually part of this collection known as the public, right, and we're here in all kinds of different ways that has to figure out how to be in relationship with each other. Our public life isn't about us being in relationship to government. Mm -hmm. It is about our relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. And you're referencing that at one point we started off five steps down the road because there was this shared faith, basic shared status, all of these things. So then you could sort of disagree about points of policy. But right now we're disagreeing about points of policy and haven't done all the work before to even understand who's at the table. Exactly, exactly. Because in the earlier days, you know, you know, our democracy was defined by who had a notion of exclusion. So as we try to move more and more into a society of inclusion, it's a different game. Yeah, because there wasn't like a shared understanding even back then. It was just that we excluded enough people to allow for right. there to be a shared understanding. <laughs> but the, the voices at the table had a shared understanding. Right. Yeah. And now we're saying, oh, wait, there are limited voices at the table why don't we try to include them? And we're finding that our structures aren't standing up to that test. You know, like a simple example that that comes to mind beyond the town hall is, you know, another image that's often associated with democracy is voting. And it's wild to me that voting is somehow supposed to be an accurate way to capture the pulse of a people. Like, think about how often or, or infrequently, rather, we go to vote. Right. At best, it's probably going to be once every two years. And even that's asking a lot because we have a turnout rate of what, like under 30 percent as a country. (laughs) Right. And that's supposed to be enough information. You know, speaking of big democracy, that's supposed to be enough information for our government to somehow know what every single person in this country wants, regardless of race, income, religion, sexuality, gender, employment status, English immigration status, et cetera. It's clearly not enough information, right? And I'm not saying that the information has to be um, quantitatively driven. Like the data doesn't need to be quantitative. It can be qualitative or anecdotal. But we don't have any form of input that would accurately gather and aggregate an understanding of what our people need, whether it be through an archaic two-minute town hall system or whether it be through a once every two years at best voting system. While Google, on the other hand, every click we make, they have an understanding of what we want as individuals, as 300 million individuals, not 30% of that. That's kind of wild to think about, right? Like, what does that mean for the way that we're structuring our systems of democracy? And who has information and who doesn't? Yeah, yeah I, One of the nuggets of value in, in what Ayushi and, and Cesar are saying I, that I want to pull out and highlight again is how these inequities are embedded in the systems themselves that drive our so-called democracy forward. Right. Uh, and a specific hyper-local example, uh, which is true in almost every community, but it's here in Seattle. Um, several years ago, I, I chaired something called the Housing Affordability and Livability Agenda Task Force, which was addressing uh, at the request of the mayor and the city council the, the, the housing crisis that's here in, in our region. And one of the, the the core truths that we really sought to highlight, and we got some resistance to highlighting it, is that the inequities that exist in the housing system and the housing patterns of our communities 
are embedded in structural patterns of racism and exclusion that go back hundreds of years. You know, one of the 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 key indicators over time of uh, a family's ability to gain uh, assets, an asset base, and and resources in our in in the U.S. is home ownership. And yet, when you look at patterns of home ownership uh, by different racial and ethnic groups, the the patterns are stark. And one of the the constituencies, communities that has has lagged behind in terms of their ability to achieve home ownership are African American families. Why is that? Well, when you look in Seattle, as we did uh, with the, the the task force that 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 we organized, those patterns of home ownership are rooted in structural decisions and designs related to urban planning that are centuries old. Covenants of neighborhoods that didn't allow African-American families or Jews or others to buy homes. And some of those covenants have never been erased. They may not be enforced now, but they're still on the books. Um, the GI Bill uh, after World War II, which, which specifically did, did put African-American families at disadvantage in terms of their abilities to benefit from the opportunities that the federal government was providing uh, to families across the United States. And so the, the, the challenges that we face are structurally embedded into our systems. And so one of the things that we need to think about how we do is how do we actually change or, or, and, and get, as, as, as we've been hearing, the right constituencies at the table not just to participate in the conversation, but empowered to actually make the decisions about how to change the structural rootedness of these inequities uh, in ways that promote opportunity and equity for everyone, uh, which then leads to kind of not the model of a rising tide floats all boats, but the concept of targeted universalism that John A. Powell and others uh, have have promoted. It says you can't you can't just say let's make it better for everybody in in a in a in an equal fashion, but there are actually some communities and constituencies that have been put at specific disadvantage that need specific tailored opportunities that focus on promoting success. Uh, in in sometimes a sort of a, a, a micro-demographic fashion. And I think the thing on a more optimistic note is that we potentially have tools to do that at we this do. point. We do. We have a lot of tools at our disposal, and I think it is about, I mean, it's one of the reasons we started to move is, and why we interview the people we do is because there are people out there doing this work. We call them civic designers because they're exactly what David said. They're kind of redesigning the civic structures that we've taken for granted for so long. And whereas a town hall might have been the way to gather voice, clicks are now a way to gather voice and that we're actually voting in hundreds of ways every day with decisions we make and exposing our preferences and all of these things. I think that is true. And one of the things Ayushi pointed out was that, you know, taking the Google example, you said they know about what every individual is doing, but that's not what serves the, the, the core of democracy, right? Because democracy is about the relationship between people. And uh, I always say this when people ask me, I use this quote uh, from Karl Moore that he wrote about community. I adapted for the word democracy. Uh, and it goes like this. It says, you know, democracy exists when people who are, who are interdependent can struggle with the traditions that bind them and the interests that separate them so that they can realize a future that's an equitable improvement on the past. And one of the reasons I love that quote, because I think it's, you know, it's very intricate, but I think it's at the core of what it takes for democracy to, to exist. And he uses the word struggle in there, and I think it's really important because we tend to, I don't even know what the right word is used, but we tend to, like, try to make functioning democracy look like it has to be bland. Right. <laughs> right? But if people are going to wrestle with traditions and interests, then there's going to be a struggle. And so the question really for us is, how do we design the spaces where people can peacefully be in those kinds of struggle? Right? Mm -hmm. That's the challenge that we have. Because that's the work to be, the work to be done is creating opportunities for those struggles to happen, but making sure they can happen in a way that's peaceful. And right now, that's not what's happening. They're happening at all. Regardless of what side you are on the issue right now, all of our modes are combative. Mm -hmm. They're combative modes, right? One winning over the other, mm -hmm. right? And I think that direction has us doomed, right? 
And so we have to think about a different way of getting at this. Even, you know, to bring it kind of full circle, even the theme of, of this podcast with unlikely allies, I think is really rooted in this willingness for struggle and this openness to struggle. And so how does this this idea of valuable strangers, like specific, David, to the work that you're doing, valuable strangers or unlikely allies, is that something that, that you're cultivating? Is it is it something that is part of the practice of, of civic engagement from where you sit? Yes, it is. And I'll give an example of, of an initiative that we're part of here and, and we're also supporting uh, with a grant that's uh, part of the Civic Commons, which is a, a branch of the Seattle Foundation. And it's an initiative around belonging. Uh, and what we're trying to do is is to promote a conversation across sectors about what well-being in our region means. And across sectors means community, community-based organizations, educational institutions, government, the corporate sector, and the philanthropic sector, all in conversation with each other. And the goal of these conversations is not to create another initiative or another conversation, another, another program, because there are many, many programs and initiatives. But the goal is to try and move the existing conversations out there from the what I call the symptoms to the disease. We have a lot of initiatives locally that are working on the symptoms of structural challenges and structural oppressions. Those symptoms include uh, homelessness. They include educational inequities. They include um, health inequities. And those to me are, they're critical symptoms of the challenges we face, but they're not the underlying diseases. Uh, we do a lot of health work here at the Gates Foundation, so we use a lot of health metaphors. And this metaphor to me is one of, of yes, the job, the first job of the physician is to alleviate the suffering of the symptoms. But if you don't treat the underlying disease, the patient dies. And to me, the underlying diseases that we need to address in our region here locally, and this is what the Belonging Initiative is, is, is all about, are structural racism, gender inequity, and extreme income inequality, for starters. Those three challenges, those three systemic challenges, this region has in, in significant proportions. And so, and all of the, the initiatives that are out there, 20 some initiatives in our region, whether it's Best Starts for Kids, which is a, focused on a specific age group, or whether it's, it's uh, the Communities of Opportunity, which is focused on specific micro geographies in King County, all of them are, are trying to deal with the symptoms of these underlying conditions, these underlying diseases, which we need to both name and then tackle. Uh, and that's the conversation that I think if you have that conversation across sectors, if you have that conversation in a way that brings everyone to the table and one recognizes that, yes, the, the that educational opportunity is incredibly important and being inequitably delivered uh, across King County, when you realize that the corporate sector is importing talent from around the world in the high tech arena, for example, here locally, which is great. But they're not creating opportunity for the folks that are here in this community already who are not necessarily getting the educational opportunity, the credentialing, the degrees, et cetera, that they need to thrive. Uh, so, you know, my belief is that that every kid in, in South Seattle and South King County, where, for example, the Tuckwilla School District exists around the SeaTac Airport, relatively small school district, it is the most diverse school district in the United States. Kids in the Tuckwilla High School speak 45 different languages. How do we create an educational system where all of those kids who come from homes with 45 different languages graduate from high school and go on to get degrees that enable them to be to access the the, the 40,000 jobs at Amazon uh, so that they're not if they're going to work for Amazon, they're not just packing boxes in a warehouse, but actually working in the high tech jobs right here in Seattle that 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 uh, would allow them and their families to thrive. So yes, uh, it's really, I think, critically important to address those underlying issues and the initiatives around belonging and access to opportunity are exactly one of the, one of the ways we're trying to do that here. And I think that gets to voice too, back to what Caesar started Absolutely. with. Absolutely. I just keep having this, someone once said, it's like looking for the keys where the light yeah. is good. And it's kind of like if you are a tech person, you only know your the tech solutions to a problem, but you're sort of just widening 
the scope by having more voice. And then you actually see problems in different ways and you see solutions in different ways. And it, yes. one more thing, it also means coming to each other to build relationships and not transactions. We are a highly transactional culture, but we are a highly relational species. Uh, and one, one story just to illustrate that it's totally unrelated to anything we're talking about. When I first moved to Seattle from New York about 30 years ago, um, I, I didn't know a lot of people here and I wanted to plug into the gay community, which, which I'm part of. And so I went to a, a Friday night, uh, gay men's potluck group. And I sat down to talk to somebody who looked interesting. And, and, uh, the first thing I, I said to him was, um, uh, so, so what do you do? And he looked at me and he said, what are you from New York? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, we don't start with that question here. That's not as important to us. Uh, we start with the question, what, what, where did you go hiking last weekend? What, what books are you reading? What movies have you seen? Let's, let's start there. Let's build a relationship. Turns out the person I was talking to was a very distinguished child psychiatrist uh, at Children's Hospital at the University of Washington. Um, and it took me weeks to find that out because he didn't want to talk about child psychiatry and, and you know, his distinguished career. He wanted to talk about where I went hiking. He wanted to build a connection that wasn't about what we do, but who we are, which is existentially a very different thing. And I think at the belonging level uh, at community, we need to start with that existential, who are you? Tell me about you, not what do you do? That's kind of a boring question. Yeah, it's a lot easier to get stuck in a transaction yes. than it is to get stuck in relationship yeah, building. That, no. Why does this matter for, for democracy? Like, why do, I mean, I guess it seems obvious that how we relate as humans, but we think of democracy as this much more group decision-making. I don't know. No, I think, well, because it's about people, right? And it's, you know, and the, the best we can do uh, our aspirations should be able to see each other as human beings and to be in right relationships with each other. And then we can, from there, we can create the kinds of systems and things we need to support us. Uh, right now, we're doing a lot of things to support the systems mm -hmm. without yeah. the relationships in place. Right? And I think that's one of our largest problems in it. I think it, it, it squashes our creativity about what's possible, you know. I mean, you know, even David, when you were talking about Tuck Walling, and, uh, you know, the school there with 45 different languages, and what does a school look like to do that? And, you know, I keep, I think about these educational issues sometimes, and I think, well, actually, what we think of as school and education normally can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. Right, we need to actually reimagine what's possible in order to answer that question. It's almost like we're trying to. Know, what's what's the word? We're 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 trying to use a hammer, you know, actually to cut glass. <laughs> well, it's like batch processing. It's from yeah. you know the industrial it's from systems. The industrial, it's yeah. like everyone moves from third to fourth grade, but we know we're individuals. We're not batch processed, right? And at the same time. We can't. Uh, we have to acknowledge that we need public institutions and public spaces for people. We need things that actually bring people together, and not just for meetings, but that they will be in interaction. So one of the great things about schools is that they can create this incredible social environment if they have that as their highest value, right? Because maybe that's the switch. Maybe what schools become is actually the places to build and sustain and support creativity and social interaction among people, and then people will learn the other stuff at home, online. You know, maybe it's not as important anymore. Maybe when you're getting people together, you have to think about what's the greatest value of having people together, and how do we make sure that that's what we're doing in that space, and we're really putting it at the top. That's just an idea. I don't know if that's really true. Yeah. But it's just another way of thinking about what are we kind of missing? And we've done so much to erode our public institutions, right, that there are very few anymore. You know, you have the libraries, you have the school. Let's stop there. <laughs> That's <laughs> there kind of it, it right? <laughs> maybe public hospitals, maybe. You have the highways. Yeah, highways. <laughs> right. You know, it's kind of like... Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the amount of privatization that's that we've seen of, of public services and public space is is really tragic. And, um, you know, 
Ray Oldenburg's writing on first, second, and third places really comes to mind. This, he writes a lot about the way in which, um, I mean, now it's been reduced by real estate developers to like live, work, play. <laughs> but he writes a lot about um, spaces of living, like the home, spaces of work, like the one we're sitting in, and then spaces of play, like parks um, or coffee shops or sort of, you know, depending on the age group, right? And how each place brings with it a different type of relational environment. And as a result, as maturing adults throughout your life, from the time you start, you know, preschool or even beforehand maybe, you learn how to navigate the relationship between, with, with strangers, like public figures that you might only pass um, when you go to the same grocery store, versus private figures like your parents or your siblings that you see on a very intimate basis. And you learn how to navigate a sphere of relationships based on the proximity that you share in each of these first, second, or third spaces. And now you begin thinking about what those first, second, and third spaces look like, and they're all kind of the same thing. Yeah. Right? I mean, th- the most stark example of this that comes to mind is back home from the Bay Area, if you look, if you look at tech campuses, now you can basically do your live and play, or sorry, your work and play, and God forbid, maybe even your live yeah. um, <laughs> in that same campus environment. And this is something that has historically been familiar with the college environment, right? Or boarding schools, where you do all three in the same environment. But only recently, I mean, I guess not so recently anymore, has it been exported as a model to the employer. And that's created a completely new idea of what it means to be a constituent. And as a result, it's eroded a lot of these concepts of what it means to be a part of a democracy or of a public space. We have to interact with public strangers um, and how to even interact with them on an individual level, let alone at a collective level when it comes to something like a democratic democratic system. Um, And, you know, not to bring it back all the way to Plato, but democracy is ultimately a social contract, right? That's what he writes about. This isn't about a system of governance explicitly. It's a system with which we hold each other to an agreed upon set of values, despite our our, our differences uh, in history. We are agreeing to be interdependent, like Caesar said earlier with this quote, um, and we are agreeing to be in the struggle together for the sake of a better future. You know, it's it's. I just want to say this thing about the ero- the erosion of our kind of public spaces because also those public spaces they weren't always just. I don't mean spaces that are run by the government. There are all kinds of spaces in which the public felt welcome into, and things would happen in them. And I remember when my wife came here from Turkey. One of the things we were, you know, we're in Cambridge, and there are how many colleges and universities. And she says to me, "So, where's the coffee shop that people kind of go hang out and talk about stuff?" <laughs> And I said, uh, I said we don't have any of those the coffee shops right now. Everybody has everybody has their headphones on and looking at the screen. You know, it's like, but they used to exist. That's what coffee shops used to be. You know, they used to be the places where people came, interact, and do things. And that's what I mean by the eroding of our kind of public spaces. Uh, I, I agree with that, and and I think that that the. One more term I want to inject into the conversation that comes from these social spaces and in other other sources is social capital and how you build social capital. Uh, it's fascinating. One of the issues we've worked on here uh, at the Gates Foundation is uh, the challenges faced by youth that are exiting the foster care system at 18 who uh, are at extremely high risk of homelessness. And, uh, you know, that at 18, they, they exit the system and they're expected to go be adults somewhere. And in many of the conversations that I've had with planners and, and funders and, 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 and communities about this issue, I've said, so, so how many of you, uh, when you turned 18, went to a four-year residential college? And, you know, three quarters of the hands in the room go up. And I say to them, you know what that was? And they said, yeah, it was college. I said, no. That was four years of congregate living with intensive on-site supports. <laughs> That's what college is. Mm-hmm. Because at 18 in our society, you're not equipped to go out and be you know, a full-fledged citizen of, of the world. Um, so when you take a kid who's aging out of foster care at 18 and say, oh, go, go find an apartment, go find a job, and maybe go to community college if you can do it. There's a reason that so many of those kids crash and burn. And not only is it the trauma they may have experienced in, 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 their, in their previous ex- ex- uh, lives – 
but it's the lack of social capital and the lack of supports that we provide to those young adults, which are part of what the social fabric in our in our in our American democracy has become that you're not ready necessarily at 18 to go out and be a full-fledged citizen. So why should people who have access to resources and opportunity and and um, uh, uh, privilege be able to go to a four-year residential college and come out of it at the age of 21 or 22 as somebody ready to function in the world when a kid aging out of foster care who doesn't have any access to that at all is expected to do what the rest of us don't have to think about doing until we're 22. Yeah. It makes no sense. Absolutely. Well, I am reluctant to wrap us up here, but <laughs> I could stay in this conversation for much longer. Um, and I and I just really want to thank all three of you um, because this this is a valuable stranger conversation happening live. Sometimes in these interviews, we've already seen the valuable strangers sort of convert into unlikely allies, and we're exploring this very specific way that they've found to collaborate. But this feels to me like a generative sort of creative space we're in, where there is too little conversation between some of the private markets and the ways that money and meaning capital is being used to drive change. And these really uh, completely required civic fabric that none of it works without that. I think they're both essential parts and, and without being in conversation, we we all miss the the point a little bit. So um, thank you for being with us. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for us. the opportunity to be part of this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed Lindsay's conversation with Caesar, Ayushi, and David. They, uh, they covered a, a wide range of topics, but I thought that it was, it was really fascinating, and I hope that, that you did as well. Over the next few episodes, we have um, Village Capital talking about financial inclusion and, and their new U.S.-based cohort. We have the Walton Family Foundation and, and Impact Finance Center talking about um, some really innovative concessionary investment structures that they're using around sustainable fisheries. Um, and I had the opportunity to sit down with the Kresge Foundation to talk about some of the work they're doing around opportunity zones and, and trying to ensure that there's a certain level of, of reporting and accountability. So all three of those were great conversations. So I hope that, that you stay tuned for those over the next few weeks. Um, as always, if you have any feedback for us or, or ideas for shows, you can reach out to me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.